Well, you're back with me, Dr. Phil, and we've been talking about the case that captivated the nation. A beautiful young wife accused of shoving her handsome young husband through the glass of their glamorous high-rise condo building. That's right, right through the window, causing him to plummet 17 stories to his death. Josh Hilberling's violent end at the hands of his wife, Amber, caused a national uproar, and reporters flocked to cover what would become known as the newlywed murder. It was a story and a trial that would captivate the nation, exposing secrets the picture-perfect couple hid behind gleaming smiles and a perfect facade. What led to this lovely bride being the cause of her new husband's death? It was a marriage marred by jealousy and rage that would lead to Josh Huberling's death. You're listening to Episode 3 of Beautiful Victim or Killer Wife. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. Despite Amber's insistence that she only pushed her abusive husband in self-defense and never meant for him to fall out of the window to his death, the state of Oklahoma arrested Amber and charged the pregnant 19-year-old with second-degree murder. The prosecution claimed Amber wasn't acting in self-defense when she shoved her 23-year-old husband Josh through the glass window of their condo. They believe she acted in a fit of rage after he threatened to leave her and fight for custody of their unborn child. If Amber was convicted, the soon-to-be mom could spend the rest of her life behind bars. And her son, well, he would grow up without his mother and his father. So the prosecution gave her what they considered more than a fair deal. They offered Amber the option to plead guilty and serve just five years. And when I say they thought this was a good deal, it really was one that seemed to be driven by compassion. Because if she went away for life, again, this young child would lose both of his parents throughout his young years. She'd also have credit for time served, and there would be a good chance her sentence could be reduced even further. For a young woman desperately fighting for her freedom, it really seemed like the only option. You have to understand, when you make a plea deal, sometimes they are listed as one thing, five years. But when you actually get to prison and you look at all of the concessions that are made, it can wind up being a lot shorter. Now, you never know what all the specifics are, but sometimes it can actually be as much as two for one or even more, and here's why. You get credit for time served, so that's already been done. Then you get credit for good time. If you are a model prisoner, then they subtract time, saying, well, this person's already conforming to society, so we're going to give them credit for good time, so they'll reduce your sentence based on you seeming to already 
have modified your behavior. So what could be what does look like five years, if you take away time served, maybe that's already 11 months, so now you're down to four years in a month, and then you get double time for time served, so now you're down to 24 months and a couple of weeks. Okay, so at that point, you start making arrangements for maybe movement to a halfway house or work permits, things that start to transition you back into society. It could well have been that Amber was looking at less than two years with this kind of a plea deal. No guarantees, but could well have been looking at a couple of years. That's easy for me to say, but harder for you to do if you're the one having to serve the time. So they felt like it was a good offer and a no-brainer for her to take. But in a shocking twist and in a move that would later come to haunt her, Amber refused the deal. Amber insisted she was innocent, that she had pushed Josh because she feared for her life and that she never meant for her husband for the father of her child to die. Amber decided to take her chances and go to trial. She decided to let a jury decide, and it was a choice that would lead to a fate no one, and I mean no one, not her, not her parents, not Josh's family, no one could have predicted. When asked point blank why she refused to take the deal, she replied, quote, because I believe if you are not guilty of something and you truly believe in that with all your heart, then you're going to take whatever risk is necessary to prove that. Sounds good. Sounds courageous. But statistically, it was a risky move. I say that because prosecutors tend not to take cases to trial that they don't feel like they can win. They like to go forward with cases that they feel like they have the evidence down. They feel like they have a lock because a lot of prosecutors do not look at that as a career position. They like to work as prosecutors for a few years, maybe four, maybe five, and then jump to the defense side of the docket. And when they make that jump, they want to be able to say, I never lost a case as a prosecutor. So they cherry-pick their cases, and they move forward with those they think they can win. So to say it was a risky move, especially considering Oklahoma has a reputation for having an incredibly high incarceration rate, it has even been nicknamed the world's prison capital. Risky indeed. When Amber decided to face the jury, she took on what she considered to be the two biggest challenges Amber was a smart young woman, and these are decisions that you sit with your family and discuss. And they knew they had two major hills to climb. One was where the trial was to be held, and the second was what evidence and accusations would be admissible, and if all the conversation that took place in that interrogation room between Amber and her grandmother were admitted, how prejudicial would that be to Amber. The first problem was the venue. Clearly, this story had taken over Tulsa. This is a place where this kind of thing doesn't happen very much in this group of people. Two pretty, affluent people and a dead man had everyone talking. 
Hell, Josh had plummeted to his death from a posh high-rise in the middle of town, and Amber had been portrayed in the media as a beautiful husband killer. This was like central casting had put this together. But despite this being covered wall-to-wall, newspaper, radio, television, and the family's belief that there was no way Amber could get a fair trial in front of a Tulsa jury, there was no change of venue. And the fact is, there is seldom a change of venue because it requires a judge to make an admission that he or she cannot control their courtroom. It requires a judge to say that he or she cannot qualify a jury, cannot instruct them, and that they cannot follow that judge's instructions to set aside prejudice ahead of time. It is an admission on the part of the judge that they don't control their courtroom, they don't control the venue. And it's very rare that a judge is going to say something like that. And that's what happened here. The judge said, nope, we're going to stay right here, right here in Tulsa. Then, of course, there was the matter of what police considered Amber's confession. The videotape of Amber inside the police station crying to her grandmother that she killed her husband. But Amber knew in her heart what she was talking about at the time. She knew she was venting. She knew she was just making emotional conversation with her grandmother. She knew she was not admitting to killing her husband on purpose because she believed in the core of her soul that she had not killed him on purpose. So how could anything she said to her grandmother be construed as a confession? She knew in her heart that she could not have confessed to something she didn't do and believed in the final analysis that would all come out. Understand, she was just 19 years old, and she had just seen the love of her life plunge to his death. Obviously, she was upset, but I say she was 19 years old for two reasons. It also meant she was a little bit naive here in believing that people would see things from her point of view. Now, again, there's a consideration as to whether or not Amber should have been cautioned by the police before she was left alone in that room that she was being recorded. Should she have been given her Miranda rights, where she's informed that anything she says can and will be used against her in a court of law, that she might want to seek the advice of a lawyer? Well, that's not as clear-cut as you might think. That's required before you question a suspect. But if someone who has not been declared a suspect just starts talking to someone, not the police, about their role in a crime, how can the police be expected to have Mirandized that person? Well, they can't because they didn't know they were a suspect at the time. And they certainly can't predict that they're going to start making relevant comments about the case to someone else, not the police. Common sense tells you they can't Mirandize someone they don't know is a suspect and don't know is going to make relevant comments about the case. You cannot hold them to the standard of Mirandizing people they don't know are involved in the case. Certainly not as a suspect. And you don't Mirandize witnesses. The judge saw it exactly that way and the recording was not thrown out. The judge ruled the jury would see and hear every word Amber said to her grandmother in that room. 
This was a major setback for Amber. The judge ruled you had no expectation of privacy in that room. When you are in a police interrogation room, you do not have an expectation of privacy. You are in a public building. You are in a police station in a public building. Police are investigators. You have just been involved in the death of another human being. You have relevant information. And if you start offering up that relevant information inside a police station, inside an interrogation room, you do not have an expectation of privacy. Let me just take a minute here. I'm not trying to counsel anybody on how to get away with a crime, but every situation is subject to interpretation. Every situation is subject to being twisted or turned. And you always hear people say you don't want to talk to the authorities until you have a lawyer present. You may not take that literally. You may think, well, I can tell them a little bit. I can deny it. That's okay. I can tell them my name and where I was and what I saw, and it's okay to tell them I didn't do it, right? No, that is not right. You don't say anything until you have a lawyer present. If they say, okay, Bob, tell me what happened. What you need to say is lawyer. If they say, now you didn't do this on purpose, we know that. Can you at least tell us what happened? Lawyer. We don't regard you as a suspect. If you ask for a lawyer, it's going to make everybody look at you differently. So what do you have to say? Lawyer. Would you like a cup of coffee? Lawyer. Are you tired? Would you like to lay down? Lawyer. You don't say anything. If you just make the decision that you don't say anything, then you don't have any decisions to make about what's okay to say. And again, I'm not trying to tell you how to get away with a crime. I'm trying to tell you how not to get caught up in things being twisted or turned. Look, you don't have to be hostile. Just be consistent. And when I say don't take a drink, when you take a drink, you're depositing DNA. You're giving it to them. You're volunteering it to them. And they need a warrant to get that unless you volunteer it to them. And you may say, well, what do I care? I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you just let them do their jobs. If you sneeze with a Kleenex, put it in your pocket. You just don't do anything to help them build a case against you. And everybody knows I am a huge fan, proponent, and supporter of law enforcement and first responders. I'm not saying that they have a corrupt or nefarious agenda, but I'm saying they have an agenda. And their agenda is to clear crimes. And once they decide they have a suspect in their crosshairs, they're very good at building a case. And we know there have been dozens and dozens of people on death row that with the advent of DNA have been cleared. So here we are with police that I believe do a good job, that are well-intended, that have taken people all the way to death row that have been proven to be innocent. And with the advent of DNA, so many men that have been convicted of rape that have had to be let go because now with DNA, they found out they weren't even there. So I'm just saying there are people who make their living dealing with the system, and that ain't you. So if you wind up down there, 
you just need to cross your hands across your chest. You don't take an offer of a drink. You sneeze, put it in your pocket, don't answer any questions, and ask for a lawyer. And if you say, well, I don't have a lawyer. That's great for you, Dr. Phil, but I don't walk around with a team of lawyers following me. Maybe you do. I don't. All you have to do is ask for a lawyer. They'll get you a lawyer. That lawyer will get you through the night. Then you can hire a lawyer the next day, but they will provide you a lawyer that night, that day. You will get a lawyer. You don't have to have a defense team on standby. They will get you a lawyer. They're required to by law. Protect yourself at all times. Now, back to this story. Now, Drugs were also a huge point of contention in Amber's case. Both Amber and Josh had accused each other of taking drugs and pointed the finger at one another. Josh's family had accused Amber of using drugs while she was pregnant. And it wasn't a good look when Amber tested positive for pot after Josh's death. Amber was out on bond when she tested positive and she was put right back in jail after she failed a drug test. But Amber also pointed the finger at Josh, claiming he was not only abusing, but also dealing drugs, which only made her more terrified of him and his violent outburst. Would these accusations be allowed to be brought up at Amber's trial? Well, eventually they decided that this wasn't relevant to whether he was pushed out that window on purpose or not, so it was not admissible at trial. An interesting decision was made about the abuse allegations on both sides. The judge ruled that neither side could bring up past abuse allegations unless Amber brought it up first. So she was in a difficult position. In order to prove that she acted in self-defense when she pushed Josh to his death, she would need to tell the jury about all of her claims about Josh violently abusing her in the past. Like the incident detailed in his U.S. Air Force file where he allegedly threw a plate at her and attempted to pop one of her breast implants. But if she brought all of that up, then the prosecution could bring up things Amber allegedly did too, like pushing a lamp into Josh's head, which required staples and stitches. And that would not be good for Amber. The more the jury heard about Amber abusing Josh, the easier it would be for them to see her as a violent woman who may have just shoved Josh that day out of anger rather than self-defense. So those decisions were made. And as the first day of Amber's trial approached, Amber was ready to face a jury, tell her truth, and put her future in their hands. Now there's the court of law And then there's the court of public opinion. And to think that those are mutually exclusive is pretty naive. I spent a lot of my professional career working with juries in both civil and criminal matters. And we always have the juries instructed not to read anything or watch anything in the news or hear anything on the radio about the case. But I think it's pretty naive to believe that that is pure, that none of the jurors listen to what goes on in the media about a case. And here's the reason that's important. Something may not be admitted at trial, but it will be discussed in the media. So it finds its way into the jury box. 
and can influence the deliberations. It can even be discussed in deliberations when it was never presented in court. And in this case, every day the media would be crowded both outside and in the hallways of the courthouse reporting on the wife accused of killing her military husband. And I have to tell you, the media just tore Amber apart. Mainly because of how she looked in court. Reporters, bloggers, and viewers took notice of Amber's model-like looks and her wardrobe. They seemed to hold that against her. They thought she looked like she was enjoying her semi-celebrity status. Instead of coming to court dressed as a grieving widow, they labeled her as dressing like a bombshell with blown-out blonde locks, a full face of makeup, wearing form-fitting suits and stiletto heels. Many of them labeled her as looking more like a model ready for her close-up than an innocent bride in despair over accidentally causing the death of her husband. The prosecution presented their side. They said Amber was furious because the very day she pushed Josh Hilberling to his death, he had packed his bags and was leaving her for good. He had had enough of being abused by his wife, and he had made up his mind. He also warned her that he planned to try and get custody of the unborn baby. Josh tried to take a taxi but couldn't find one. Then he called his dad to pick him up, but his dad was at work. He then called a number of friends, one of which finally agreed to come as soon as he could. As I told you previously, when Josh fell to his death, he and Amber weren't the only two people in the condo. This was a couple that fought so frequently, like cats and dogs, that when the repairman was sent up to the couple's condo the day of Josh's death, they were, once again, in the middle of an argument, and the repairman could hear them arguing from the condo's balcony right before Josh's body shattered the living room window and went hurtling through the air and landing with a horrifying thud on the building's garage roof. The repairman raced inside to see Amber enter through the condo front door, hysterically wailing. My husband fell out the window. I pushed him. He's probably dead. Let me say that again. This was a quote from the repairman that he attributed to Amber. My husband fell out the window. I pushed him. He's probably dead. Neighbors overheard the chaos as well. A female neighbor heard a male voice saying, So what do you want me to do? She then heard a female voice say, I want you to grow up. Another male neighbor heard a thump, 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 and then a crash of glass like a 50-gallon aquarium exploding. He went on his balcony and at first saw nothing until he looked down and saw Josh's mangled body. As paramedics examined Josh, Amber continues to make more statements like, I pushed him. The Tulsa police are informed of this, and Officer Holloway approaches. The prosecutor finished her opening statement by telling the jury how Amber told her grandmother, quote, they were right. They kept saying, if we stay together, I will kill him. When it was Amber's turn, Amber did not deny that she pushed Josh and that she caused him to die. The question was, why did she push him? What made her do it? Now, Amber wanted things to be very clear. She never denied that she pushed Josh and that it did not end up in him dying. 
But the thing she wanted to focus on was the question of why she pushed him, what made her do it. And from the very beginning, she claimed that that push was pushing back after years of abuse at the hands of her husband, that she was standing up for herself, protecting not only her, but her unborn child. Her plan was to call witnesses who were on the scene who would describe her as inconsolable, hysterical, and screaming, can you please fix my husband? And another witness who would testify that Josh was angry on the day he died. Because let's face it, an angry 220-pound man fighting with his 5-foot-5, 140-pound, 7-month pregnant wife is an imbalance of power. You just don't get the picture in your mind of her being able to move him across a room and push him out a window. She intended to show photos of her injuries suffered throughout the years that she claimed were caused by Josh. So her story was she acted purely in self-defense that day to protect herself and her unborn child. Josh's father, Patrick, would be the first witness called by the prosecution to take the stand. He said his son was so scared of Amber that he told him to go get an order of protection against her. Even though people looked at Amber and saw a petite, pretty, pregnant girl, Josh's father said he was afraid of what she would do to his son when she was angry and he needed protection. He also insisted that Josh was going to ask Amber for a divorce. Amber's position was that Josh was angry a lot. He was even angry that day about having to pay to fix the window that she said he had broken when he threw a laundry basket. And she wanted the window repairman to tell that story. And he said that the first thing he heard with the shattering glass made him think, what's happened to that poor woman? He assumed it was Josh who had harmed Amber, not the other way around. So what did he witness that day about their interactions that would have made him think that? Or did he just assume the petite and beautiful wife was the victim? Other witnesses testified about seeing the body fall. Then, Detective Don Holloway was called. The most damaging part of his testimony was that he claims he heard Amber at the scene say, quote, Nobody is going to believe me. I'm going to jail. Another revelation came from a surprising character a bad-to-the-bone convicted criminal with a rap sheet that could make a hardened criminal look like a pussycat. Her bond was revoked and she was put behind bars for smoking weed and messing with her ankle monitor. A woman named Bonnie Fulton. She claimed that she became Amber's prison buddy. She claimed Amber made a sick confession to her when they were behind bars together. She claims Amber admitted she knew Josh was going to leave her, so she caught him off guard and shoved him. And according to Bonnie, Amber's words were, quote, I killed the bastard, close quotes. You can guess what Amber had to say about that. She said Bonnie was a full-on liar. She said she never spoke to a soul in jail and certainly didn't chit-chat and share stories with a hardened criminal. When asked if she ever said, quote, I killed the bastard, Amber replied, bastard, what am I, 40? I've never used that word in my life. That's an old person word. Okay, let's talk about this jailhouse snitch here for a minute, Bonnie Fulton. Now, I don't know Bonnie Fulton, don't know anything about Bonnie Fulton, but I have to say, 
it's awfully convenient in these cases when somebody pops up and says, oh, Mr. or Ms. Prosecutor, I have some really good information for you. They confess to me that they did it. Now, I've been involved in numerous criminal cases, and it just never fails that somehow or another somebody pops up and says they confessed the crime to me. Now, I've always said when you're assessing whether someone is telling you the truth or not, should you believe them, should you rely on them, the first question you need to ask is what do they have to gain by telling you what they're telling you? Now, just think about it simply. If somebody says, this is a really good car, would it matter to you if they're the one selling you the car or if you had gone and hired an independent mechanic to evaluate the car? Who would you believe the most? Well, of course it would be the independent mechanic because the person selling the car has something to gain by telling you that. And here's this jailhouse snitch that has something to gain. Obviously, you shorten my sentence, you give me a better placement, I get extra privileges. All they have to do is say something and they gain something. You just have to take that with a grain of salt. And it's been my experience that jurors do not weigh this kind of thing very heavily. And ask yourself, would you weigh this very heavily? If someone said, this woman is so dumb that she came to me in jail and said, hey, come here, I killed the bastard. Is that believable? I would put that at the bottom of the list of credible information about this case. Ask yourself where you would put it. Soon it was time to play the tape conversation between Amber and her grandmother. For an hour, the courtroom was dark and silent. All eyes were on the video of this young woman in shock and disbelief. How the jury felt about Amber at this point would go a long way to how they felt about the things she was going to say. Now, it was important to remember that up to this point, the public had only heard about certain quotes Amber said in the room. Statements like, Josh is dead. This is going to turn into a nightmare. I killed him. These had been reported in the news, but the courtroom and jury would get to watch the entire conversation with her grandmother not just hear certain edited phrases coming from Amber, but all of it. Statements that might help her. Statements such as the following. How did this happen? Why did he have to fall out the window? I want you to be here. Just come back, please. Please. I love you. I love you so much. And I just want to know what was going through his head if he knew he was going to die. If he said a prayer, or if he cursed my name, or if he just thought that he could catch himself too. My last thought was, please catch yourself. Who am I praying to, Josh? Josh hates me. I'm not even going to be able to meet him in heaven anymore because he just hates me. For Amber's sake, now the jury would get to hear all of it and truly observe the grief trauma and self-blame this 19-year-old was experiencing. But did the jury hear these things? Or were they just spotting those catchphrases they had already heard about? Would they just focus on those things they recognized and say, aha, 
This confirms that she did say those things. Would they have such familiarity that they would block out everything else? This was a critical time in this trial. How they interpret this video would go a long way towards their verdict. After the lights in court were flipped back on, Detective Felton was called to the stand, and he would remember that he was actually off-duty when first getting the call and asked to report to the University Tower, where he immediately went up to the 8th floor parking deck. After checking the scene out for a short time, he went to the detective's division to conduct interviews, first speaking to Mr. Rosales. After that, he went to interview Ms. Hilberling, while her grandmother Gloria remained in the room. I mentioned in the prior episode that Detective Felton obtained a search warrant for the condo so he could go in and inspect what he considered to be a crime scene. What I didn't tell you were some important details about what he found when he went in. I said he found it significant what he did not see, which were the signs of a struggle. But he did find some interesting things when he started to inspect the area. While inside, he would discover an emergency order of protection of Joshua Hilberling against Amber. He also noticed there was no male clothing around, but saw two packed bags on the floor. Other than the broken window, there was nothing out of place in the living room. No sign of any long struggle. Amber, of course, felt like there was evidence of a struggle. Arguing held by neighbors the observations of Mr. Rosales that Josh was angry, and the photo of her bruising could all point to a struggle. But the detective did not agree that those things actually proved a struggle. It was now Amber's turn to put some witnesses on the stand, and she had hired an expert, Mark Meshelam. He was an expert that had been testing and installing glass in buildings for over 30 years. He would say the glass in the window was not safe. The building was completed in 1966, so it was 46 years old at the time. The metal framing holding the glass in was the original. Then you add this unusually thin glass, and you have an accident waiting to happen. Not to mention, the glass in the accident may have, for all we know, been the original glass from 1966. Mr. Meshelam would promise a picture-thin glass like this would never be used in one of my buildings. In addition to Mr. Meshelam, Amber's grandmother, Gloria, also testified. She recalled answering the phone to hear Amber hysterically screaming, Josh is dead. Gloria's son would drop her off at the tower, and after a lengthy search, she found Amber in a state she had never seen her before. Crying, sobbing, saying, Quote, oh my God, he's dead. What have I done? His face, his face. She requested to join Amber in the car with Officer Holloway and then went into the private room with her on the second floor. Gloria acknowledged that everyone was polite from the officer on to Detective Felton, and they were never told by anyone they would not be recorded. In fact, Amber's grandmother agreed with the prosecution's assumption that she was worried about her granddaughter's rights and did not want her to say a word to anyone else in that room, at least not anything while in her current state. When they come in, just say, I don't want to say nothing until my attorney gets here, okay? Don't, don't, and don't slip any other way. Quit saying you're 
pushed him out the window. Grandma would be asked by the prosecution about the possibility she was suggesting to Amber that the couple had been struggling in the room because Amber's response to Gloria's statement, you were struggling, was, what do you mean? Gloria would be quick to point out that the entire beginning of the conversation in the room never got recorded. If you heard this exchange, plus all the tape dialogue between the two in the correct order, you would have a very different opinion on this. As Gloria stepped down, she was emotional as she passed by her granddaughter. The courtroom was quiet. There was the anticipation of who the last witness may be. Amber Hilberling was about to take the stand and be put under oath. She was beautiful and soft-spoken, but her eyes were downcast. Her demeanor was that of a victim of tragedy. The court watched with rapt attention as she began her testimony. Within the first minute on the stand, Amber admitted to everyone that she pushed her husband, Josh. But the very next question was why. The jurors and members of the court were frozen with anticipation. Amber tearfully answered, Because he was grabbing me. He was hurting me. I just wanted him to stop. She shakily described the day of her husband's fall. An argument started in the morning. Amber claimed she was the one who told Josh she wanted a divorce. As their argument continued, Josh became enraged. While in the bedroom separating laundry, another argument began and Josh threw the basket, breaking the window. Shortly after, Amber called down to have someone try to repair the glass. While the repairman, Mr. Rosales, was in the bedroom, the argument moved out to the living room, where they met by the TV. Amber says she remembers Josh grabbing her hard by the shoulders with his huge hands, and she said she felt scared for Levi, their son who was named the moment they found out she was pregnant. She pushed Josh off. They made eye contact the entire time as he was falling backwards. Amber remembered him going through the glass and then taking a moment to try and comprehend what had just happened. She rushed to the window just in time to see him hit the ground. Amber continued to explain to the jury her state of shock and confusion that day, leading her all the way to that interrogation room. Amber would state that she really didn't recall much of what she had said to her grandmother. Her mind was lost and she couldn't truly comprehend what had just taken place. When the prosecution had the opportunity to examine Amber, the first thing she was asked was if she had ever joked around about killing her husband. They were attempting to confirm what the jailhouse snitch Bonnie had testified to earlier. Next, they asked Amber to recreate the push. They used Detective Felton, who was about the same size as her husband. He was role-playing Josh. Now the detective had his arms on her shoulders, and Miss Keeley asked Amber to show the push. Felton would later describe Amber's attempted recreation push in court as gentle and not what she was truly capable of. The prosecution would say, you have to remember Amber was seven months pregnant and that she probably had even less power in her condition. Miss Keeley suggested the difficulty of Amber being able to move the detective in the demonstration showed Amber needed a running start to move Josh out that window, exactly the way their neighbor, Nate McGowan, testified. A running of feet from left to right, and then a crash of glass. According to the prosecution, it was all lining up. Amber, of course, refuted this, 
She said it proved that she couldn't have moved him, that the only way he could have gone through that window was by accident if he tripped. Miss Keeley next addressed the shirt Amber was wearing at the time Josh was going through that window. A picture of her white tank top would be shown to the courtroom. The prosecution would describe that woman's top as a, quote, spouse beater. That's right, a spouse beater. Even though the sometimes used slang for a white shirt of this type, generally worn by males, is a wife beater. The judge allowed it. Amber's final response to the question, did you mean for Josh Hilberling to fall through those blinds and that glass and out the window when you pushed him, was no. I did not. The prosecution asked differently, quote, did you intend to push him, yes or no? To which she honestly had to reply, yes. After closing arguments that summarized the evidence, the case was over and now in the hands of a dozen jurors. The media was in a frenzy. The courtroom split completely down the middle. There was Amber's family, friends, and supporters that vehemently believed in her innocence, while Josh's family was convinced their son had been murdered by his vindictive bride. After only three hours of deliberation, the jury came back. Now, this is really significant because you have to understand that there's an awful lot of paperwork to do in a case this complex. First, you retire to the deliberation room and you have to elect a foreperson. This takes some time. There may be two or three people that volunteer for the job or whatever, and they might each have a few things to say, kind of campaigning for the job. And then once you have that person, then the bailiff will give instructions about what the logistics are of how to communicate with the court or with them, where the bathrooms are, et cetera, et cetera. There's some housekeeping that takes place, and this can take anywhere from 15 minutes to a half an hour. And then there are jury instructions. And these have to be read carefully by everyone. And this is before you get to any questions. And this can be several pages, single-spaced, typewritten, that can take anywhere from 30 minutes to 45 minutes to read and understand. People read at different rates, and everybody has to comprehend and know what the procedure is to be before you ever get to the first question. And then it doesn't just say, do you find the defendant guilty or innocent? That's not the question. What it will do, it will give you a definition of second-degree murder. And it might say, do you find the following elements were proven in this case? And it might have five or six elements. It might be something like, was there malice? Was there intention? Whatever it might be. And so you now have to talk about each of these elements. And if all of those elements are met, then you check yes. And in this case, if you don't find second-degree murder, then there was an option for manslaughter. So you have to let people know you have one or two options here and what the definition of each is. So what I'm saying is there's an awful lot of minutiae to cover. There's an awful lot of paperwork and housekeeping to cover, and they were only gone for three hours. I'm guessing that there was at least half of that time spent in reading, housekeeping, filling out forms, meaning that the deliberation here was probably 60 to 90 minutes, and that includes a sentencing recommendation. 
So chances are this case was over when they went in there. They may have had their minds made up pretty early on because there doesn't seem to have been time for much heated debate. Either way, after just three hours, the jury came back, and they came back to a jam-packed courtroom, and every person on the edge of their seats, waiting to hear the fate of Amber Hilberling. The verdict? Guilty of murder in the second degree. The jury's recommendation for Amber Hilberling's sentence? 25 years behind bars. Amber appeared shocked and then broke down in a flood of tears. Amber's family members were beside themselves. Amber's mother, Rhonda, held Amber's baby in her arms a short distance from Amber. Now, not only had the baby lost his father before he was even born, but now he had lost his mother too. The lead prosecutor was satisfied with the 25-year sentence, saying that because Josh had been pushed from the 25th floor, Amber had gotten one year for every floor he fell. Makes a nice story, of course, but he only fell 17 floors. Josh's mother, Jean, told a news reporter that she knew this would be the outcome. The evidence was overwhelming. The verdict does not bring our Josh back to us. However, if we can prevent someone else, another man, from being abused or killed, then Joshua was not killed in vain. Make no mistake, this was a terrible loss for the Hilberling family. Any time a parent buries their child. It's an unnatural thing and a terrible, terrible loss. And I can only imagine how difficult this was for the Hilberling family and that this verdict probably brought them at least a small measure, a small feeling of justice. For Amber's family, it was just the opposite. It was like throwing salt in an open wound, feeling their daughter was being victimized yet another time. When would this pain end? When would this runaway train ever stop? So where would this story go from here? Are there possible grounds for appeal? Amber's parents really wanted to speak with me. I agreed to meet with them and give them my opinion. After looking over the facts of this case and talking with Rhonda and Brian, I offered to fly to Oklahoma and speak with their daughter in prison. I was willing to do that for them, but more importantly, I was willing to do it for Amber and Josh's son, Levi. There, I recorded an extremely candid interview with Amber. You will hear Amber in her own voice taking you through the nightmare of losing Josh and now losing her freedom, the freedom that would allow her to be a mother and raise her young son, Levi. I spoke to her from two different points of view. One, from the psychological point of view of where her head was now and what she could say to herself about what life held for her going forward, but also from the standpoint of working as a trial scientist for a lot of my professional career. I wanted to examine her story, her explanation, to see if it held water and to see if it had in fact been distorted. I wanted to know myself whether or not I believed she belonged in prison or if this was a miscarriage of justice. To do that, I had to ask some admittedly very hard and penetrating questions. You won't believe our exchange and the things that are said. And there is one more twist to this story that no one 
saw coming, certainly not me. There are shocking revelations to come on the next episode of Beautiful Victim or Killer Wife, Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil.